with what I'm going to try to do. Um, so uh, let's read the passage. It's Philippians 4, 4 through 7. We're just uh, continuing on in the book of Philippians, picking up where Jerry left off last week. Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you tell us that your commands are not burdensome. And you command us to rejoice and to pray and to have faith in you. Help us to hear from you this afternoon and um, have grace from the Holy Spirit about how to live rejoicing and trusting in you. Thank you that you are our Father and that we can trust you and that you care about us. Most of all, we thank you for Jesus Christ who died in our place so that we could be your children. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, In high school, I had uh, two really, really good uh, English teachers. I'm an English teacher here in Hannibal, um, and I had a husband and wife. Uh, The wife, Mrs. Warsig, was my freshman English teacher, and the husband, Mr. Warsig, was my junior English teacher, and I took all the electives with them that I could take. Speech, uh, advanced comp, fiction, poetry, anything they taught, I would take, and and they had a huge impact on me. Mrs. Warsig was kind of the sweet old lady type person. She had uh, polio when she was a little girl and walked with a cane and a leg brace and would read little critter books to the students to break the ice on the first day of school and do the voice uh, from the characters. And uh, everybody, everybody loved her. Uh, I remember my dad told me a story. Uh, his, His last year of high school was her first year teaching in the high school, and she was right out of college, and somebody made fun of her that first year. And other students beat that guy up because everybody loved Mrs. Worsig so much, and she was... uh, is very sweet and easy to love and really loves the Lord. And then her husband, Mr. Warsig, is much more of kind of a gruff guy that uh, has this personality that you really want him to respect you because you think, like, if Mr. Warsig respects me, then, then that is a, a really good sign because he's a, he's a tough guy. And what Mr. Warsig taught me was uh, in writing an essay, the key is to get a good thesis. And he would pound that home. He would grade so hard on our essays that we would write, what is your thesis? Is your thesis good? And, and that's the main idea, right? The last sentence of the first paragraph for him was always the thesis. And that's where you said, I'm going to prove this with these points. I'm going to say that this is the best option because of point A, point B, and point C. And if you had a thesis, at least for me, in Mr. Worsig's class, if I had the thesis, then my paper was, was determined by that thesis. If I could come up with a really strong thesis with three or four strong points, 
I felt like my essay was written for me. I just had to put it down on paper. And if I got a bad grade, mediocre grade, I could look back and say, you know, that thesis really isn't that good. And so everything hangs on the main idea of what I'm trying to say in my essay. And tonight, I'm looking at our passage in Philippians like that. Like the thesis of this passage is verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. I think how to obey all the commands in that passage, the power is in verse 6. So if you're only going to come away with one thing tonight, what's my point? What's my thesis? Verse 6. Don't be anxious, pray to God. Don't be anxious, pray to God. That is our point. That is our thesis. And everything in this sermon is hopefully going to build that up. In verse 4, the command is to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And there's part of me that says, okay, right, we have our command. We're supposed to rejoice. Now do it. Go home. Be better. Rejoice more. Follow the rules. And end, right? Let's, let's be done. Just rejoice. And to be honest, that's how we live. That's how I live a lot. It's just, I see the command. I know that I need to obey the command. And I try to do better. But that's dead wrong because that doesn't last. We can say, Brian, you don't rejoice enough. Start rejoicing more. And for a while, I can do the outward stuff. I can even do things to cultivate, maybe in my heart, some more happiness and, and joy and thanksgiving. But if it's powered by myself, it doesn't last. When you're focused on how you need to have more joy, it seems to rob your joy for some reason. You'll, you'll say, man, I know I don't have a lot of joy. Uh, so in worship, I want to really make sure when we're singing that I have a lot of joy. And, and for a second, you get this feeling of joy and, and happiness in God, and then it's all gone, right? Because you, you took your eyes off of God and you said, oh, I did it. I had joy. That's how it is for me. It's, it's frustrating. Sometimes even to the point of questioning my salvation. This, like, get joy, Brian. You need more of it. And trying to force this to work in me. I've tried to be more joyful on my own strength a lot. I'll, I'll, I'll make a new rule for myself. I'll say, okay, joy's kind of going down right now. You're, you're not uh, really enjoying the Lord or, or thinking about how great he is that much. So only rich, deep worship songs in the car. Like that. You're just gonna, when you get in and drive... It's going to be good stuff. It's Shane and Shane and Indelible Grace and Red Mountain Music. And that lasts for like three days. And I get bored with that and start listening to sports or talk radio again. Because my rule that I tried to use to give myself more joy lost its appeal. Sometimes I uh, take good things and emphasize them more in life. But when it's powered just by my desire to have more joy and not powered by trusting in God and praying to God, it doesn't last. For example, I'll, I'll know, uh, man, we've been having people over and conversations have been good and fun, but they haven't really been focused on the Lord. So when people come over, we're going to make sure we talk about the Lord or pray before they leave or read a Bible passage or something. And in my heart, the only, the only difference between that being a good 
thing and a bad thing is where your heart is. Are you, are you making, Brian, am I making this rule because I, I want to force myself to have more joy? I want to obey this command out of my power? Or is it because I've seen how good God is and I'm trusting him and that's overflowing into talking about the Lord? On the outside, it can look exactly the same. We went to Brian and Cassie's house and we talked about missions and we prayed. And if you're the guest, you, you have no idea why I wanted to do that stuff. And, and the reasons can go back and forth between God-honoring and powered by the flesh. Sometimes my mind's like, okay, God, I'm really doing the right thing right now. Do you see how I'm obeying you? In that moment, it, it really feels like I'm doing the right thing, but there's a heart issue. Is my focus on how great God is or on how I need to do more stuff for him? The answer to that heart issue has massive implications, like the Pharisee and the tax collector. One of those men went down to his house justified because his heart was in the right place. Okay, this whole passage that Jerry talked about last week and we're talking about tonight, Paul is talking to the church and he says, you, you ladies, in the first two verses, please start getting along. And then the next command is rejoice in the Lord, always. And again, I say rejoice. And I think it's interesting when we stop and think about who wrote this to the church. It's Paul. And Paul probably is, is in prison right now when he's writing this letter. So he can write a letter and say, ladies, please quit fighting. And the whole church, please have joy. Rejoice in the Lord, always. And it's, it's like Paul sitting in prison saying, if I can have joy in this moment, I know you guys can have joy. He's not just uh, okay, content with the circumstances, and just going to uh, buck up under it and, and make it through and not complain. He's going to have joy. So he's, he's better than not complaining, he has joy. But then he has so much joy that it overflows to where he has to write a letter to people to tell them to share in this joy that he has. And that's while he's in prison waiting to be executed. What an example for us that this man says, Jesus is enough. Jesus is all. Your grace is sufficient for me. So much so that I can't keep this joy in. I have to spread it and ask other people to have this joy with me. I thought it was interesting uh, as I started to do research on the passage and what people thought about the book of Philippians, that uh, one commentator said that the tone in the, in the letter of Philippians is uh, ex exuberant. He said, how many death row inmates would we say are exuberant? Only Paul, because he had this joy of, of Christ while he was waiting to be executed. If John Piper is right, and I think he is, then joy is so important it's a, even essential to the Christian life. And so verse 6 is how we get to that joy. If joy is the beautiful facade on a building, then verse 6 is the mortar that holds the bricks of the beautiful facade together. There's a, a picture of a beautiful house. And if you were driving through this neighborhood and, and you saw that house, you, you wouldn't say, man, look at that mortar. That mortar really makes that house look beautiful. You say, look at the bricks, right? The bricks are what 
make this house look great. If they just put metal siding up there like a barn, we wouldn't probably be calling this a house. We would just call it a big metal house. But the bricks are beautiful. And in the same way, joy is what makes us beautiful as a church. When we go through difficult circumstances, whenever we share about how great God is, that's beautiful to the world and to God. But you can't just stack bricks on top of each other outside of a house and expect them to stay put. The, the joy only lasts when it's held together by the mortar of prayer and trusting in God. The next picture is a chimney where, uh, to continue the analogy, the prayer hasn't been uh, used to maintain the quality of the joy. We were uh, roofing Michael Brookshire's house the last couple weeks, uh, one of the pastors here. And we got up on the roof, down on the ground, you look up, he, he just has a chimney, normal. And we get up on the roof and look a little closer, and there are humongous cracks and problems where mortar is falling out. And I even grabbed a brick, and I could slide it right out of the chimney and slide it right back in. Because probably three or four decades of no maintenance on the mortar. The shingles hadn't been replaced in a long, long time. And so uh, no one was getting up on the roof to take care of things like the mortar. And I think it's a really apt analogy that you cannot just have the beautiful thing like the joy, like the trust, if you don't have the mortar of prayer and faith that holds the joy together. Verse 5 says, let your, reasonable, let your reasonableness be, made known, be known to everyone. And at first, just to confess, I was kind of troubled about this verse. Because I thought uh, reasonable, reasonableness, what's that mean? That's real. I, I was asking guys, like, what does it mean to re- let your reasonableness be made known to everyone? And I thought about us as a church. And I thought, are we as Believer's Church known as reasonable in our community to the people outside of our church? And, you know, maybe there's a warning for us in that. But I was relieved to study some more and realize, you know, in the context, uh, rejoice, pray. And so reasonableness is about dealing with difficult circumstances and how we trust God in the midst of of things that are difficult. Um, reasonableness is like a level-headedness or a calm that um, is impossible if you do not pray to God our Father. It's as if God is telling us in this verse through the Apostle Paul that no matter what the difficulties are or the challenges or the pain or the suffering, let the community see that you have faith. Let the people around you know that you have a God to trust in when things are difficult. You have something to trust. That's what I think Paul means when he says, let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. It's a reasonableness and a level-headedness that's trusting in God when things are difficult. And remember that that doesn't always look reasonable to the world in every situation. Say, why, why would those people trust God? Why would those people have faith in this difficult circumstance, if, if this pain has come into somebody's life, if there's cancer in their family, how can they be praising God and thanking him for being good enough 
So maybe sometimes to the world, being reasonable and level-headed from God's perspective won't look reasonable. Maybe it'll look crazy. Next, the Lord is at hand. I think that's a fantastic promise. Just to stop and, and say, the Lord is at hand. To think about that we have a God who made the universe so powerful and good and eternal and that he's near to us. I think there's two ways to look at this fantastic promise. First, the Lord is at hand to, to watch out for you, to do justice for you. Because remember in the passage, Paul tells those two ladies to get along. And then he says, rejoice to the whole church. And so there's a reminder to people that you don't have to settle your conflict. You don't have to get yours. Make sure that you're right, people respect you, everyone's fair to you. Because God is at hand. He'll look out for you. You don't have to make sure you get justice because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He will take care of you. So you can, when there's conflict with someone, forgive. Remember how much you've been forgiven. You can let it go and you can say, I don't have to justify myself. God's justified me. I don't have to prove myself. I, I don't have to hold a grudge against you because I know I've been accepted by God. He's at hand and he will... He will deal with everything. I'm just going to trust him and let the conflict go. I think that's a, a good way to look at it. But I think in a bigger way, God is close by to take care of you. So God's close by to give you justice. And secondly, God is close by to meet your need. Because the next verse tells us to pray and ask for the things that we need. Paul's saying, God is close and he wants to take care of you. And I think that that is amazing. It can be easy because we've heard this so much in America or growing up in churches or even coming to church for several months or years in a row. How amazing the fact that God is near can, that can become not so amazing. It can become just normal. I understand that. But I really want to dwell on it even though it's basic because it's fantastic and almost unbelievable to say God made the universe. He's in control of everything. He knows everything and he never began and will never end. And he's near to me and he cares for me and he wants to take care of me. I hope that never gets old. I hope the, the newness and the beauty of that stays right in front of me. That I wake up in the morning and say, God, again, you're here. You gave me life and I can't believe it. Help me to trust you. Jesus told several stories in the New Testament, and, and I love the stories about how the father or the seeker, the shepherd, rejoices whenever whatever is lost or needy comes to him. Because Jesus has a firsthand account while he's in heaven, how does God react to his children? How does God treat people who trust in him? And so when Jesus comes to earth and has an opportunity to, to tell us that in a story, he says, God is like the shepherd who rejoices over a sheep. God is like the father of a prodigal son who throws a party and runs and hugs him and weeps 
And so Jesus, who knows exactly what God the Father is like, when he has a chance to tell a story, he doesn't just say, the Father said, it's okay, I forgive you, come on in. Or, I got my sheep, time to put it in the pen. But we have a Father who is so eager to take care of us, to love us, to do us good. Ultimately, who is so eager and happy to save us. Sometimes we can know the truth about how sinful people are and how they deserve to go to hell, and we can forget that God really is eager to save you and love you. We can say, oh, people have watered down the gospel. God is wrath against sin. God is justice. And we forget that most of all, most of all, God says, I'm love, and I cannot wait to save you and do good things for you. And so I think of how much joy God has to save us, and then the, the promise that can sustain you for life, Romans 8, 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God will save you, he'll give you everything else you need. If he's your father, he cannot wait to take care of you. So you can have joy, you can have reasonableness, level-headedness, and difficulty because the Lord is at hand. Paul commands it. He doesn't just say have joy. He says have, have joy because the Lord is at hand. He will hear your prayers and he will take care of you. So then, in the next verse, it makes perfect sense if the Lord really is at hand for Paul to say, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. First, he states it negatively. He says, don't be anxious about anything. Our anxiousness comes from a lack of faith when we're not trusting. I know this so well. Especially when I was a, a little child, I was owned by worry. Like, way more than uh, a child should be. I would have, uh, I, I know, we moved out of our house when I was four, and I know this happened in our first house, so I was four or younger, and I remember going to the emergency room because my stomach pains were so terrible from anxiousness and just afraid, I don't know, just being afraid, not of a thing, just, just fear and, and worry. If I remember co correctly, I think I was maybe even worried about getting caught like because I lied to my dad or I broke something or something like that. And, and not that I had mean, abusive parents, but just that worry owned me. I had migraine headaches, terrible. My parents took me to the Mayo Clinic one time because doctors couldn't, like I didn't have a brain tumor and, and kids my age shouldn't have migraine headaches so often. They would just make me physically sick. I would come home from school because worry just possessed me. I would uh, bite my fingernails, not just like a habit, but like an addiction. I just wouldn't stop biting my fingernails. There were nights when I would be terrified, just to fall, I'll die in my sleep. Strange stuff, maybe I should have gone to a counselor, I don't, now that I'm saying it out loud. Um, but in high school, I started to really trust Jesus, and he started to work in my life and change me, and those things just kind of sloped off. I'm not owned by this anxiety anymore. It, it kind of crops up more like in certain situations, especially if I'm going to leave my kids. We, we traveled to uh, Uganda in April and uh, 
couple years before that, Matt Campbell and I went to Haiti on a long trip, uh, mission trip there. And each time going to the airport, it was like uh, just physical sickness because of anxiousness, like um, no, saying to myself, God will look out for your kids, but then really doubting what if something happens while I'm gone and, uh, and just really not having faith in those situations. And, and it reminded me of my childhood, just the way it would grip me and I would almost have a panic attack um, out of a lack of faith. But the remedy to that is not get over it, quit worrying so much. It's pray, it's trust, know that God is your father and will take care of you. So he says, don't be anxious. And then positively in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Don't miss that. Prayer isn't just for pain or problems, but it's in everything. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. And the most important prayer, the first thing Jesus says when he gives a model prayer is, hallowed be your name, holy be your name. So the thing as children that we should ask for primarily is, God, make your name great in this situation. God, we can't pay the bills. Make your name great by taking care of us. God, I'm just torn apart in my heart right now. Make your name great by comforting me. God, this friend of mine hates you. And he thinks you don't care about him. Make your name great in his life. That's the number one way to pray. Our Father in heaven, make your name great in the world. Send me, how can I make your name great in this world? God, what can I do to make your name great? And it's important uh, with prayer, definitely, I think, to, to have a focus on God's glory and that his name would be made great. But on the other hand, there's definitely a principle in the New Testament that God answers prayer because you wrestle with him and that you are persistent. In Luke 18, the persistent widow gets what she wants, gets her justice, because she won't go away. And in that story, Jesus says, God's like the judge, and God finally answers the request because she won't stop. There's no mention of, God was really happy to do this, or um, it was in his will to do this. The, the focus of that story is that she would not stop asking until she got what she wanted. So don't give up. Don't always feel like you have to take the edge off your prayers by saying, God, my, my mom has cancer. Please, if it's your will, heal her. That's a good prayer, and we should pray that prayer. But at the same time, the Bible leaves the door open to pray, God, heal her. God, heal her. And to fast and pray and to demand and beg, God, heal her. You've, you've given me an example in the Bible that I can pray like this. So let me pray like this. But ultimately, of course, God, that your name would be made great the way Jesus modeled for us. Not my will, but your will. But to, to have tears and passion and begging to God... Is that in your life? Do you ever pray like that? I think in prayer, um, it's very easy to talk about and not always 
easy to do. I wanted to just read the verse from James 4. You do not have because you do not ask. But then it's followed up by you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly that you could spend it on your passions. And then Habakkuk 3. Habakkuk is just praising God here. And then he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be in the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. So, nothing to eat, starving to death. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's the perspective on prayer. God, God you are great. But no matter what, I will trust you. And I'm going to live for you. Uh, I've heard of some folks who, this prayer they have from Habakkuk 3, they have that read at their wedding. And I think that's such a fantastic idea. I wish I would have known about that when we got married. Just saying, God, no matter what happens, even if we can never have children and life is terrible, we're poor and hungry and, and uh, just miserable, we will still praise you. Even if things are a train wreck, we will praise you. That's the perspective to have in prayer. And then to remember that it's not a train wreck because if God's your father, he, how will he not with Jesus give you everything else that you need, even if it's not what you think you need? And remember who you're asking as you pray. Not just God, as if that would be a small thing for the God of the universe to hear your prayers, but you're asking God the Father. God, your Father, if you're a Christian. And that, even though I've known it since a small child in Sunday school, has just been blowing me away, I think, since last October, um, that God is my Father, and, and that I ought to view God really like a dad who wants to take care of me and wants me to, to treat him and trust him like he's a dad. And this is all because of the gospel, that God the Father would send his son to save his enemies and make those enemies children and, and not just say, okay, you're accepted, you're forgiven, you get to go to heaven when you die, but to say, ask and you receive. I want to take care of you and I want to bless you and give you everything that you need, joy in me and provision for life. A father that was your enemy and that you hated, now says, I want to bless you. I own the universe, and I'll take care of you. Please just trust me. That's what God says. Please just trust me. And that, that truth that God is my Father, it's blown me away from Matthew 7. On the next slide, I think. Matthew 7, 7. I never saw these things put together before. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets." I had read this passage so many times and heard it so many times as a kid growing up. 
And I started to think about these crazy promises that Jesus is making here. Ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Like, can we really believe that? Fantastic, crazy promises that Jesus is making during the Sermon on the Mount. How could this be true? Verse 11 is the answer. Your father takes care of his children. He's your father, and he will take care of you. All you have to do is trust the father. And then and only then, when you are trusting your father, can you do verse 12, which is the golden rule. Love other people as you love yourself. And that's a a totally different sermon. But I think that uh, knowing that you have a father is the fuel, the only way that you can love people. Because if you've got to look out for yourself, you have no time to go love people. But if you have a father who's looking out for you, then you're free. You can give it away because you don't have to look out for yourself. So in this passage tonight, we have joy, we have reasonableness, we have level-headedness, and the command to not worry because God is your father. Pray to him and ask him. So what's the result in verse 7? What's the promised result if we'll ask God? It's that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul's saying the key to victory over anxiety and worry is the prayer of faith, trusting your Father in heaven that he will take care of you. He says your heart, your emotions, what you feel, and your mind, your thoughts, what you know, will be guarded by the peace of God. And I think it's interesting that Paul's the one who's talking about being guarded as he's in a Roman jail, surrounded by guards. Nothing is getting to Paul without those guards letting it come through. And in the same way, he says, if you will trust in God your Father, he will guard you. Like these guards are sitting around me, nothing gets to me without those guards' permission. And, and ask God your Father, nothing will get to you. He will guard you with peace through Christ Jesus. And this is the kind of peace that can say, Jesus is enough. Though the, the tree doesn't yield fruit, though there are no flocks in the, in the fields or no herds in the barns, I will still praise you. Though my daughter dies in a car accident, Jesus is enough. I will still trust you. That's the kind of peace that God can give. Enemies are all around me. Comfort and selfishness are tempting me to waste my life. Pain is ripping my heart. I'm worried. And peace can guard me and keep all that away. I can love people. I can trust God to take care of me. I can give my life away to him to use as he wants if I'm trusting him as a father. So two final points as I close. And the first one is just let's be honest about how unbelievable this passage is. And I'm, I really mean hard to believe. Rejoice in the Lord all the time, always. Again, I say rejoice. Have faith in difficulty. Listen to these commands. Have faith in difficulty. Don't worry. Trust that this God that you can't see is going to take care of you. Really? Does it really work? Does prayer really work? 
And what have we been taught our whole lives? Just say, yeah, I believe that. The Bible says that it's true. I'll believe it. And then we go out and live like it's absolutely, of course, not true. Where's my savings account? That's true. I can see that. And if you're struggling, wrestle with God. Ask for faith. Have doubts. Be honest about the doubts. He says, if you lack wisdom, ask for it and he'll give it to you. If you don't believe God's promises, it doesn't do you any good to say they're true because they have no power in your life if you don't believe them. So don't, do not say this passage is the truth if it doesn't have power in your heart and truth in your heart. Wrestle with it. And I feel this very deeply in myself. Secondly, like I said before, prayer is very easy to talk about and not so easy to do. Wayne Grudem has such a convicting quote, if we pray little, it's probably because we do not really believe that prayer accomplishes much at all. So this sermon, please do not say, take it as an appeal to start doing better, rejoicing more, praying more, getting up earlier. Take it as an appeal to trust more. I was really thankful for a reminder that Jesus' rebuke to the apostles is not go do more stuff for me. It's trust me more. That's what he wants. And a trust that overflows into prayer and says, God, you're my father. Please take care of me. So ask yourself here in closing, um, first of all, when my life is not marked by rejoicing, what is robbing me of my joy? Next slide, Richard. Secondly, how can we grow into more rejoicing as a church? Third, where do I need to repent of anxiousness and pray to God about situations that make me anxious? And fourth, what specific promises of God do I need to trust in right now? So we're going to take a couple minutes just to pray and wrestle with God before Jerry comes up.